Welcome to The Family Room, sponsored by Versprite, where we offer hope, encouragement, and wisdom centered on biblical truth and Catholic teaching, because God's kingdom begins at home. Now welcome your hosts, Mari, John, and Craig, right here on AM 1160, The Quest, your Atlanta Catholic Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Family Room. I'm John Gordon, and I'm here with our co-host, Mari Cleveland. Hello, hello. Greg Wiesmeyer. Hey, buddy. We're going to talk about a topic today that I think rather than spend a lot of time, I think it touches a lot of folks' lives. Yeah. And the best introduction opening I think I can do uh, about our guest and the topic is to, uh, is to read a quote from Archbishop Charles Chaput. And, and let me just read this. And it's about the book that we're going to discuss um, today. And it says, Archbishop Charles Chaput commented on the timeliness of this book, saying, many faithful Catholics have a difficult time both understanding and articulating the church's teachings about the difficult moral and cultural issues of our time because they lack confidence and because they fear being canceled or accused of bigotry. They remain silent, even with members of their own families. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult topic, but it's one that cannot be just kind of backdoor, right? Yeah, and he doesn't mention what the topic is in that, but it is one of those topics that, as he says, touches more people today than it typically has in the past. And so uh, the book that we're going to be talking about is a book called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology by John Birch. And so we are so thankful that um, John is with us today. Uh, John serves as the vice president of appellate advocacy for the ADF, which is the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's the largest public interest law firm in the world that defends religious liberty, free speech, parental rights, marriage and family, and the right to life. And he has actually argued 12 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court, including those that defend the Catholic Church's teaching on marriage and sexuality. Um, John speaks to a lot of groups around the country, both religious and secular groups. And um, he is a married father of five, and he is now a grandfather as well of his very first granddaughter. Congratulations. Um, and he um, he serves actually um, in his Catholic communities as well, both with being Knights of Columbus in Knights of Columbus, as well as being past president three times of um, a Legatus chapter in Grand Rapids. Um, and a member of the Pro-Life Partners Foundation Advisory Board. So you're not busy at all, John, um, but we really <laughs> <laughs> thank you for, uh, you, for... You could have stopped at the five kids. That yes, was that, was enough. that would have been, right, exactly. So thank you so very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Yeah. Um, so, John, we're going to, we typically do start with prayer, actually, here in the family room. So um, we're going to have Craig open us with prayer, and then we're going to ask you some more questions about yourself and your new book and the father and the son and the holy spirit amen. amen heavenly father we come before you in gratitude um, for your gifts for your blessings and for john and all he's trying to do to stand up for truth and we just ask you to pour out your spirit on all of us so we can be open to your message of standing firm in truth uh, being objective in truth but also learning how to love and be merciful in that understanding that a lot of times people just come from a broken perspective or a fearful perspective, and we need to really love and bring Jesus Christ into those conversations and into those realities. And we just ask you to be with us on this show and open the hearts of our listeners and all of us, and we just turn this all over to you in Jesus' holy and blessed name. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. So, John, thanks again for being with us. It's always fascinating uh, to hear our guests share their what we call their faith walk. Like, 
how how they get from they were born to the to where they are now and you have had a full agenda so can you share a little bit of that faith walk with us i can um well, i'm a cradle catholic uh, came from a very good catholic family uh, my parents both came from catholic families attended mass every week you know went to confession on a regular basis um, prayed every day um, but i wouldn't say that i had intellectualized the faith as i was growing up i was being catechized um, first at a Catholic school, and then in religious faith formation in the late 70s and the early 80s. And as you know, those were not really great times for catechesis in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my wife and I got married, and we were committed to our Catholic faith. She's cradle Catholic as well. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that we could have articulated or defended why the Church teaches what it does about a great many things, because we just never really explored all of that, you know, even something like contraception. You know, why did the Church prohibit that? We, we didn't really know, but we knew that's what the Church said, so we were going to do it. Um, so after we'd had, I, I think it was our third child when she was a baby um, of the five, there was a little notice in the bulletin at our church about an apologetics class. Hmm. And I decided that I would take it. I figured as the kids were getting older, they'd have questions, and we needed to be able to articulate why we believed these were truths. And that apologetics class just set me on fire. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, ever since, um, theology and Catholic teaching have been an intense part of my study life. Um, I, I share a lot of that with my wife, and, and she's really into the spirituality side in ways that neither of us were growing up. Um, you know, studying the lives of the saints and, and things like that, um, deepening prayer life. And so she shares with me what she learns. And so we've just come a long way. And so I, I look at where our kids are today, um, you know, some recent college graduates, uh, one still in college, one at high, still in high school. Um, and, and they are so courageous when it comes to evangelization mm-hmm. and talking about the church's teachings because they had all this formation that we lacked. And it was really that thirst to always understand the why that got me into this book. I don't think any lawyer uh, goes into practice setting out to be uh, an author about a a book involving gender ideology, Um, but it was an increasingly huge part of the religious liberty and free speech practice that I had at Alliance Defending Freedom. And I was able to learn all the legal arguments and I needed to know all the science, but I wanted to know the theology too. Mm -hmm. And so just like I did back in that apologetics class, I dived into papal encyclicals and writings of bishops here in the United States, um, you know, even some things on unrelated topics where you could see connective tissue. Um, and that was really the genesis for a book that covered everything from A to Z so that Catholics in the pew who don't have a law degree, don't have a theology degree, don't have a medical degree, can quickly pick up and understand all the different aspects, the different facets of gender ideology, and talk about the truth with their kids, their grandkids, their friends, neighbors, and fellow employees. That's great. I actually have a two-part question, if you don't mind, John. Uh, The first one is, um, relating to the book itself, why the title, Loving God's Children? Well, it was important that the the book be focused on kids, because that's really where the gender ideology movement is focused today. Um, You know, when when this first started, and they allowed boys identifying as girls to use the locker room and the restroom and the shower and things like that, people didn't really get upset about that. If you look at the public polling, people just kind of shrugged their shoulders, you know, and then it, it turned into preferred pronouns. And again, people kind of shrugged their shoulders. You know, even good faithful Catholics that I talked to said, well, isn't it the loving thing to do to just affirm somebody's identity that they proclaim for themselves? 
Um, you know, and then it started to get into sports. And when the boys were beating the girls in swimming races and track races and things like that, you know, people started to pause a little bit. Now, wait a minute, this is going a little bit too far. Well, now it's to the point where they're trying to take kids as young as kindergarten and first grade, get them to identify what their gender is, transition them at school, and keep all of that a secret from their parents. And I think that's kind of the cultural moment that really started to wake people up. So I, I wanted it to be clear that we're protecting our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the loving portion of it was a, a really important aspect as well, because gender ideology can be something that's scary and foreign to people who haven't confronted it before. And those who are suffering from gender dysphoria, which is a diagnosed mental health illness, have severe problems and they deserve our compassion and our support, our empathy. We need to accompany them, you know, in the, the strongest sense of that word. Um, so I wanted to, to communicate that this was a book that was going to help parents both do the loving, but also help with their kids and all in the context of the church's teaching. And uh, even went so far as to get the Nihil Opstat and the Imprimatur um, so that anyone who picked this up would know that there was nothing in here that contradicted Catholic Church teaching. Mm. I think that's that awesome. So yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. And as, a, as an attorney and now as an author, um, the nuanced nature of language, I'm assuming, plays into a lot of what you've run into. And I find with a lot of these ideologies that come out, the uh, I'll call it the opposing side uses certain language to make it sound very nice and very good and all those other things. So when you think of the language used, gender ideology, all of the affirming, all these kinds of things, you know, do you really think it comes out of a a sense of innocence? Do you find it problematic? And in some cases, do you find it actually directed in that way to be confusing? I think it's a little bit of all those things. Um, I think to a, a parent who had a child who was suffering from gender dysphoria Um, went to a doctor and was told to transition their child and they wanted to do what was best for their child and they didn't have any other information. So they they went and did it. And now, you know, it'd be almost impossible for them to back away from that position, no matter what evidence they're presented, because to admit that they were wrong Mm -hmm. would be to admit that they allowed their child to be horribly abused and permanently disfigured. You know, for, for them, I think it's out of love, you know, that, that they advocate. But for the medical doctors who should know better, because we've got long-term studies from foreign countries that have been engaged in this kind of research and treatment for a lot longer than U.S. doctors have, um, I, I don't give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to their motives, because there's a lot of money involved here. You know, mm-hmm. when you're talking about $70,000 for a so-called transition surgery, um, or where Planned Parenthood is getting a huge source of its revenue from puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. I believe they're the largest distributor in the United States. You know, th- those aren't good motives. And then you have the, the politicians, you know, and, and they're using the, the language entirely to demean people who hold the same view as the Catholic Church and to try to promote their own interests. Um, you know, you, you put all that together, and I think there's, there's bits of all of that in there. Mm. But, but in the end, um, I think we can all agree, whatever the motive, it is confusing. Because to say that this is how someone was born and we should love them for who they are is a lie. As a matter of science as well as theology, there is no such thing as a boy born in a girl's body or vice versa. Um, and, and you know, to be really clear to anyone who thinks that there might be divisions between Catholic teaching and science, um, there's not. There's a whole appendix on that in the book. Um, but in this area in particular, everything that science has to say about this is consistent with the Church's teachings. 
Can you can you deny or confirm one thing? Because you mentioned mm-hmm. Europe earlier. Have yeah. they not stopped doing a lot of these surgeries because they found out that it is problematic? Yes. Uh, so UK, Denmark, Sweden, Finland. Um, I, I don't know why this was such a big thing in, in the Scandinavian countries, but those were all the, the world leaders in so-called gender-affirming care. And so they encouraged early use of the puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and ultimately the surgery. They have now stopped all of that. Um, They allow some of it on an experimental basis, um, but the results from decades of this practice were so bad that in good faith, their, their doctors could not continue going forward with it. And it's important that they have decades of experience because sometimes going through these treatments can have temporary bumps where someone feels better about themselves. Mm -hmm. And so if you're measuring it in one year, two years, even five years, you're not going to get that. But they have 30-year studies, and they're much more comprehensive than the ones in the United States because when you see a a study from a U.S. medical institution, the participants in the study are almost always self-selected because we don't have a tracking system in our, our, our medical system to be able to follow up with somebody. And so... Only the people who want to respond in a certain way end up responding to those surveys. They have national health care plans in all these other countries, and so they've got it in the computer. They can follow someone all the way. And what it shows is that for those who, as adults, go through a full transition, you know, they have the, the surgery where their genitals are mutilated and they're refashioned as a different sex, um, that their suicide rates go up, their incidence of mental health go up, they have uh, brain development issues, bone density issues, heart problems. In, of course, loss of permanent um, fertility as well as sexual function, and ultimately even reduced life expectancy. Some studies say as much as uh, a 50% uh, reduction in your life expectancy. So based on all of that, th- those doctors really had no choice but to shut it down. But in contrast here in the United States, where the issue has been very politicized rather than science-driven, um, we've just seen an explosion in gender clinics and an explosion in kids who are being encouraged to go through these really harmful treatments. Oh, that is a lot to take yeah, in, isn't no. it? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, interestingly enough, um, I became interested in this a few, a couple of years ago because of one of the books that was first out there, and I just recently ordered a book that was written about the Tavistock work in mm-hmm. the UK, and somebody went through and went through all of the, all of the studies and all of the resources, all the background from all of that to really show what what the truth is around that. So, yes, thank you for walking us very clearly through all of that and like you said science science said you have to have longitudinal studies so it's just amazing to me that people are looking at like you said these few things happening here in the u.s and claiming truth based on not nothing accurate and not even scientifically um driven so listeners can i pause there a word that you used a couple of times truth Mm -hmm. and how important that is (laughs) because another turn of phrase that the other side tends to use you know love is love and that was used initially for same-sex marriage, but it's kind of become an umbrella slogan for the entire LGBT movement. And there's a, a, a misuse of the word love in that context, that love somehow means giving into what somebody wants or their own definition of who they want to be. And the, the Catholic Church through our catechism teaches very differently that love isn't a feeling, it's not a sentiment, it's certainly not giving into someone's desires. 
but it's an action word, and it means doing everything that you can to will the best of the other. Mm-hmm. And you know, I love talking to parents about this because parents of little kids instantly understand the difference between those two definitions of love. If you've got a child who really wants to touch a hot stove, and they beg and they plead and they say that it'll make me feel better, um, no parent would do that because they understand an objective truth yes. that the child doesn't. Hot stove will burn you. And because they will what's best for their child, they'll say no to that desire because they want to protect them. And, and when you think about the medical evidence in the gender ideology field, you know, love is love is, is a slogan that does not acknowledge the truth of how much mm-hmm. harm these interventions do. And so if we want to truly love our brothers and sisters who are experiencing gender dysphoria, it is not to affirm something which is not true and to lead them down a path that will cause physical, emotional, and spiritual pain for the rest of their life. It's to do something that will help them get past whatever problem they're having. Right. And, and so I, I just encourage everybody to focus on truth and authentic Catholic love and not this fake love that's peddled by our modern culture in the United States. Yeah, that's so well that's said. said yeah. And listeners, if you are just joining us, you are here in the family room and we are talking to John Bursch. He's the author of a new book out called Loving God's Children, the Church and Gender Ideology. And John, you just spoke to something we were going to ask. I think you already said it very well, was that you began the first chapter in your book talking about what is truth. And then you gave a definition of love in that very first chapter because um, it, it was so important to pe- for people to understand what, what love really does mean and that it is willing the best or willing the good of the other. So, um, yeah, so so critical. Just just in the spirit of clarity and truth then, John, um, the whole idea, we, Craig brought out a really good point and you clarified that the, the term genderology, gender ideology may not have been chosen because they wanted to be precise about, you know, what was being spoken of. What is there such a thing as a formal definition of gender ideology, or what is that definition? Um, I'll define it as best I can, um, based on the other side's terms. Okay. Um, they would say that gender is a, a feeling about your maleness or femaleness, and it can be you know expressed in different ways, um, but but it's divorced from your biological sex, and, and I use biological because. Sex gets thrown around in a lot of different ways, but th- there is only one sex. You know, you're male or female based on your chromosomes, based on your um, your, your body, um, you know, all those things. So, so somehow gender is different from that. So gender ideology are those people who push this notion that our bodies and our own sense of gender, our sense of identity, are separate things. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a really dangerous hearsay, and it's not a new one. Um, It goes all the way back to the second century. Uh, There was a a group, they were called Gnostics. Mm -hmm. And they were having a hard time understanding or believing that Jesus Christ could have risen soul and body. They could get it that someone's soul could go to heaven. I mean, that was a a first first and second century concept. But the idea that someone's body could be raised from the dead was too much to accept. And so they came up with this notion, and they were Christian, that Jesus' soul rose, but not his body, that those were separate things. And the church definitively rejected that and has many times since in other contexts to say that, no, we are not souls trapped in a body that can be manipulated and, and done with however we want. It's not something that, that dies when our soul does not. But instead, we are embodied souls. Our body says something, expresses something about who we are. And so our maleness and our femaleness is part of our identity. That's part of our soul, and our body expresses that. And when we reject that, we're doing two things. We're rejecting the gift 
that God gave us of our maleness and femaleness, but we're also denying our authentic self. And as Pope Francis explains really beautifully, when you do that, you can't enter into deep, genuine relationships with other people because you're no longer representing who God made you to be. You know, and so if you think about the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, it's impossible for us to fulfill both of those when we reject the sex nature of our bodies. It's just critically important. Yeah, that's so very helpful. And it's interesting that that heresy, that Gnostic heresy came back. It reminds me that um, the evil one has no new tricks, right? He just clothes them in different forms. And yeah, this whole thing about changing definitions of words is starting to, it's fascinating and how people just fall into just agreeing. Oh, yeah. So that's that's what that word means now. Okay, and let's go down that rabbit hole of and that trail you're leading me upon um, for what that word means. Yeah. The Associated Press puts out a whole guide for reporters, and it it tells them what language to use. And there's a whole whole portion of the guide just devoted to gender ideology. Wow. So you are not born male or female. That's your sex assigned at birth. You know, and and then it just kind of goes on from there. And, um, you know, so, so everything that you see in a newspaper or a magazine article is corrupted by this redefinition of the language. Mm. And if you don't mind, bear with me because I do have a, a question, uh, John, but I also have a story that ties to it just a little bit real quickly. There was a young lady I just saw a post on that was living uh, a life of transitioning. So she was a female identifying as a male and living that life. And in the process, a friend of hers, I don't know how it all happened, but invited her to go to church. And she was like, God's that shame of, you know, God's never going to talk to me. Why am I going to bother? Um, but decided to go. And first time she'd been in a church, I think forever, God spoke to her that moment mm-hmm. and showed her a vision. And it was a male and a female together. And this lineage that came from the male and the female, you know, at, you know children, grandchildren, all the way down. And then the vision she had was same sex partners and a line drawn underneath it. And there's nothing below it. And God spoke to her heart and said, when you live in me, and in my plan, all these other souls come into being that, you know, I can love, can love me and all these things. But when you live in this lie, mm. you are now cutting off all these souls that I intended to actually be in existence. Wow. Changed her whole life. Now, my question is, oftentimes we hear when people say same-sex marriage, I, I, I pronouns, that's them. Let them do them. That doesn't impact me. Unpack that lie, if you would, on how those things do actually impact the rest of the world. Well, C.S. Lewis writes about this beautifully in Mere Christianity when he describes all of us as a fleet of sailing ships. Mm -hmm. And if any one sailing ship gets off course, it naturally affects the other ships around it and pushes them off course, too. And so there is no such thing as personal sin. Everything that we do that departs from God's plan impacts other people. So, you know, to to go with that very powerful story that that you just talked about, if someone embraces a trans identity and they go through and they they have the surgery, they will never be able to have children. Mm -hmm. And so just like the same-sex couple, they have now closed themselves to the fruitfulness of the reproductive capacity God gifted them with, and that family tree stops with a line right there. So all the souls that God intended after them are impacted by that choice. So, you know, similar context, you can immediately see that impact. Um, but, but even moving away from that, there are so many ways 
that gender ideology impacts people in culture. Um, it impacts the women's athletes who are losing races to boys. Um, we represent at Alliance Defending Freedom uh, four young women in Connecticut who lost 15 state track and field championships to two boys who identified as girls. Um, you know, mm -hmm. everybody knows about Leah Thomas, the NCAA swimmer, yeah. uh, you know, a boy who swam as a girl and beat two female Olympians in the NCAA championships. Um, beyond sports, women lose other opportunities. The, the quote unquote uh, top female all time on Jeopardy is actually a, a male. You know, they, they took that title away from women. Um, it affects women in privacy spaces. We talked about the locker rooms and the showers, um, but it also impacts them in women's shelters where some government officials try to force um, abuse women to be in the same room with men who identify as women, even mm -hmm. though they've been trafficked and abused. In the prison systems, they take convicted men who identify as women and they put them in the women's system. There was a sudden spike in female inmates in California getting pregnant. Why do you mm. suppose that was? Well, mm. it's because they put males in the, the female prison against their wishes. Um, so women are impacted in all those ways. Um, it impacts parents. If you live in California and your child even hints that they might have a trans identity and you don't immediately affirm that, uh, they're, they're, uh, social service workers can take them away from you for abuse or neglect. Um, it was in the news a short time ago that Governor Newsom vetoed a statute that would have made gender affirmation part of the examination that their child protective service workers engage in. And some people thought, oh, that's a good thing. Well, if you read the whole veto at the bottom, he says, I don't need to sign this into law because they already have that power now. Oh, wow. You know, and, and so this is, is used as a wedge to, to drive um, the, the government officials between parents and their kids. And then, of course, there's the, the damage to the individual themselves. And if we're truly living out our Catholic vocation, we don't want to see people permanently damaged and harmed. If we see someone who is engaged in serious sin and that's causing bad consequences, even just for them personally, then we need to talk to them and try to put them on a different path. And, and that's exactly the, the same case as it is with gender ideology as it would be with an abortion or with an alcoholic or many other sins that we could choose. So th there is no such thing as private sin. And with gender ideology, all the effects are, are stark. You know, it's dropping that stone in the pond that has ripples far beyond that person. You know, I do want to bring up one thing real quick because I have heard when I've had, had this conversation with people who do support the other side, gender ideology, they'll say, oh, those are just stories. That doesn't really happen. People's kids aren't taken away from them. And yet I just had a friend I was visiting in one of the Western states and she had good friends whose pre-teenage daughter was taken away from them because mm -hmm. the daughter wanted to transition and they said no. And so she was actually taken away. So these things do really happen, John. Is that that's what you're telling us? Absolutely. And, and for those who read the book, it's replete with true life stories. Um, we, we have, you know, obviously a discussion about all the harms to the individual, but also a whole chapter on harms to other people. And every one of those is a real story documented. You can look them up. That's right. Thank you. So listeners, please stay tuned. We're here in the family room with John Bursch, who's written a book, Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. We will be right back. We'll be right back inside the family room in moments. Sponsored by Versprite on The Quest. In today's world, cybersecurity is critical for your business. Award-winning Versprite provides solutions to protect your company from hackers. For protection now, see Versprite.com. That's V-E-R-Sprite.com. The Quest thanks Versprite for their support. The Quest presents Pro-Life Minutes. Think of the most famous unplanned pregnancy, Mary. 
a poor unmarried teenager accepted God's will for her life. Her unplanned pregnancy brought us the savior of the world. Just as Mary said yes to life, the mothers of Tim Tebow, Beethoven, Nick Cannon, and JP2 all rejected abortion for their child. Yet all of them have impacted the world through their lives. To the families feeling burdened by an unplanned pregnancy, have faith in God's plan. All babies are made in the image and likeness of God. Let every child be born for the birth of every child changes the world. Let's show the world that every life matters by speaking up for life at every opportunity. For more homegrown wisdom, visit thequestatlanta.com. This is Father Kevin Peake, a priest of the Archdiocese of Atlanta, and this is my favorite prayer, the breastplate of St. Patrick. Let us pray. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Amen. This is Lisa Popcheck from More to Life. Catholic Radio changes lives. It's for you, with you, every single day. Whether you're rejoicing over something and you need a community to share that with, or you're struggling with something and you need a community to support you. We're here for you every day to teach you about your faith and to help you live it. This is your home, and we're always here for you. Thanks to our friends at EWTN, our programming is provided free of charge. But this station has other expenses that must be paid to keep the doors open and the lights on. Support of your local Catholic radio station helps keep shows like More to Life available in your area. No matter the amount, your gift works to make a difference for you, for others, and for the future of Catholic radio. Please prayerfully consider making a gift right now. We'll talk to you soon. To donate, log on to thequestatlanta.com. St. Joseph was a man of few words. In fact, not a single word of his was recorded in Scripture. But the Father of Jesus spoke abundantly in his silence, and he certainly gave us a lot to talk about. Want to go deeper? Listen to the St. Joseph series on your Quest app and on thequestatlanta.com. Welcome back to The Family Room with Mari, John, and Craig, sponsored by Versprite on AM 1160 The Quest. Welcome back into the family room. And we are here, as we said, with John Birch, and he has written a new book called Loving God's Children, The Church and Gender Ideology. Um, we've had a really great first um, half. If you missed it, please go back to the uh, podcast and you can listen to it there. Share it with other people as well. There's so much good truth that all of us, I think, really want to understand and to know. Before we dive deeper into your book, John, we have a question that we ask all of our guests on The Family Room about your own favorite family room memories. I'd be happy to. The five kids are wonderful, um, very close in age, about a nine and a half year span from top to bottom. And we had a, a really large family room on the main floor and, you know, reading and playing games and all kinds of stuff there. 
But what really sticks in my mind, um, we really worked hard on all the kids with music. Mm. And so all five of them sing, all five of them play the piano, and they all play at least one other instrument. Some of them play three or four other instruments. And so as they were growing up, we had the piano in there, and we used to gather around there and do praise and worship music. And they would just sing their little hearts out, and sometimes we'd bring the other instruments in. And I, I just remember having such warm, fond memories of that time, and especially on Easter morning. Um, we would get up, mm. and there's a, a piece that's called Alive Hallelujah. Um, you might be familiar with that. And so yeah, I put that on the piano, and the very first thing that we did is we would sing that on Easter morning, <laughs> and they would just belt it out. Um, <laughs> r- really, really wonderful time. That's awesome. That man. is awesome. awesome. Makes me want to go back and raise my kids all over yeah, again. That's, <laughs> that's, the problem. that's the beauty of this show. It makes me look at all the things I'm going to do with my grandkids. Better. Yes, exactly. Um, so let's go back and forth. Uh, yeah. Backwards, John, you mentioned a couple things. Um, just clarifying, we always hear follow the science. So what does science really tell us? And what's really going on? And I recall from your book the example of a stillborn baby I don't, I don't want to head you down that path if you got a better way to think about that. And then also follow the money. There is a lucrative financial side to all of this activity. So maybe you can kind of say, are we following the science? Are we following the money? What really is happening to us? Yeah, we, we are definitely not following the science. Um, as I, I mentioned in the first half, the science shows us that there is no such thing as a boy born in a girl's body or vice versa. Um, there are all kinds of other issues that might cause someone to feel like they were born in the wrong body. And I, I think that the figure, don't quote me on this, is that 60% of kids who experience gender dysphoria um, experience some kind of sexual abuse, um, you know, but it, it could be other things too. And when you deal with the feelings and you don't deal with the underlying causes like sexual abuse, then you're just basically begging for additional heartache. It, it's just so sad that, that we're treating it that way. Um, The science also tells us that 80 to 95 percent of kids who experience gender dysphoria will naturally resolve that dysphoria on their own, Mm -hmm. if not affirmed. And yet 100 percent or near 100 percent of kids who are affirmed will end up continuing to have dysphoria. And that'll result in puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and surgery. And we talked about many of the adverse effects that that those have. And so it's far better to just let them wait and grow through it Mm -hmm. than it is to affirm them. Um, So that's why not just using the opposite sex's restroom or sports team or, you know, clothes is so bad, but even the pronouns themselves. By affirming that, you're affirming a lie that's going to cause them all kinds of heartache and physical hardship. And and so we can't do that. And then kind of the the cap of the the science side, um, you know, we mentioned how it's so important that we accompany those who are dealing with gender dysphoria. They do have suicide rates that are 12 times that of the general population. That's horrendous. And so we, we need to be there for them and for their families. But if they would go through that full transition, the long-term studies that we were talking about in the first half show that that rate goes up to 19 times the general population. And so sometimes you'll hear the lie, would you rather have a live daughter or a dead son yeah. or, or vice versa? Right. And, and it's just a lie. I mean, based on the science, it is exactly the opposite, that your your child is more likely to attempt and be successful in committing suicide if they go through a full transition than if you affirm them. So that, that's the science side. On the money side, there is so much money flowing to those who are dispensing the puberty blockers, the cross-sex hormones, and then the surgeons um, who are performing these surgeries. I think I may have mentioned you know, $70,000 at a pop. And where the, 
the pro-trans movement has been so successful is creating dollars to flow through that pipeline. And so now many employers will carry insurance that covers transgender therapies mm. for employees' kids or even for the employees themselves. Um, one federal court recognized gender uh, dysphoria as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And mm. so that has to be accommodated. And, and so they're continually finding more and more ways to, to spend money that goes towards their doctors who have no incentive to turn off that spigot. And then there's a whole separate flow of money to the politicians who advance these types of policies. Um, there are groups like the Human Rights Commission, HRC, uh, Lambda Legal, and others um, that raise millions and millions of dollars for LGBTQ causes. And they're using that money to prop up candidates who will support gender ideology and public policy. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you see laws that, for example, prohibit counselors from even talking to kids about resolving their gender dysphoria by aligning their mind with their body. They could mm-hmm. lose their license if they do that. Of course, they're free to help someone embrace a trans identity. They just can't do it the other way. Or policies that prohibit families from being foster or adoptive parents if they won't agree ahead of time to transition the kids. Um, these school policies that uh, encourage throughout the entire curriculum, and it's not just in sex ed because most states have parental consent laws that allow you to withdraw your kid from the sex ed discussion. They're doing it in English class and history class mm-hmm. and math class, encouraging them to embrace trans identities and then keeping it secret from the parents. So no one is following the science in pursuit of gender ideology, but instead they're following the money and it's flowing in in massive quantities from many directions. There's something you just said, and you said it along with that list, and I just wanted to highlight it because I remember having a conversation with somebody recently, and it was something that made them think in a new way. And you said they are no longer able to help them align their minds with their bodies. I studied psychology Mm -hmm. in college, and that was the whole part of the field of psychology, right? When there was this disconnect, you helped people go from what's going on in your mind that's not true, that's not real, and aligning it with the truth of your body versus now we're saying no we're going to we're going to change your body to align with this mental dysphoria that you have it makes no sense the field of psychology has always been let's heal what's going on in the mind as you said it's a dysphoria it is a dysphoria which is not the way you should think that's a great entry point if you're having a discussion with somebody who is on the fence or is even very pro gender ideology is to just ask some questions and one simple question is why do you suppose it is that gender dysphoria is the only dysphoria, and there are many of them, where doctors encourage the, the patients to align their body with their mind rather than the other way around. Yeah. If you had a child who was anorexic, that's also a dysphoria. Yeah. They believe that they're fat and they're really not. And no medical professional would encourage them to eat less or to have a surgery that would cause them to lose more weight. That would be the exact opposite of love that would be causing severe harm. Or there's another condition called body dysmorphia, where someone feels like a a part of their body doesn't belong there. So say my right arm or my nose, um, it just gives me incredible psychological distress to know that that's part of my body and I want to remove it. And no medical professional would help them remove the nose or give them the tools so they could remove their own arm. It's only in gender dysphoria. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when you do the interventions in gender dysphoria and it doesn't take care of the underlying mental health problems and they continue to suffer even after they've had the transition. So why is it that that's treated different than everything else? I, I can guarantee you there is no one out there, no scientist, no layperson who can answer that question. Extreme cases, but I mean, I've heard of somebody that thought they were said they were blind, identify as blind, and they blinded themselves. 
they poured right. some kind of fluids in their eyes. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at it and you would put that person in front of the same people you argue your cases in front of, would you say this is healthy and this is normal? Who would agree to allow their children to do this? Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd all be like, well, no, that's ridiculous. But yet people are doing it. And that does bring me to my question, because obviously this is just a phase, right? This is going to pass and we really don't have to do anything about it. Or would you argue effectively that the opposite is true? The opposite is absolutely true because people are being hurt right now. You know, we think about abortion and how urgent the pro-life cause is because every day that goes by, well, abortions continue in our country, um, innocent human lives are being taken. And so that gives us an urgency. And it's no different here. Boys and girls are having their lives ruined by gender ideology. There's a whole chapter in the book about detransitioners. Those are individuals who had gender dysphoria. They made the transition, realized that that was not helping or was a mistake because it harmed them. And so they detransitioned and they now identify with their natal sex again. And their stories will break your heart. And and this goes to that urgency point. They'll say that they express this dysphoria. And so rather than being given psychological counseling, they were immediately pushed into these transitions. They were put on the puberty blockers and the cross-sex hormones and and all that. And they were never told that there were any alternatives. Mm. And so now, you know, say it's a girl who transitioned and now she's transitioned back and and she's had a baby and she can't nurse the baby because she had her breast removed. Mm -hmm. And what you hear from them consistently is, why didn't anyone tell me? So what drives the urgency for me, what I hope will drive the urgency for everybody listening to this, is that you never want to be confronted by that family member or friend or coworker who, after going through this or having a child go through this and then having it all go wrong, comes back to you and says, well, you knew better. Why didn't you tell me? Yeah. Why didn't you say anything? It could not possibly be more urgent. Thanks for confirming that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, John and I have talked about, we talked about on this on this show, and I know you probably can't say it in court, but I mean, let's be honest, and you use the example of souls not being born. Well, this is the devil, direct fight against God himself, saying, I'm going to take all these loving people you want to love that may want to love you, and I'm going to take them out of the game. Mm-hmm. And I think it's you know truly a, a very satanic thing, unfortunately, that we've allowed ourselves to fall into. Yeah. You know, there's nothing new. Humans just find different ways to sin. And, and this is really the same sin that we've been engaged in going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, and that is rejection of God's gift, refusing to trust, and self-determination. Yeah. And this whole thing is being driven by the notion that I don't need God to tell me who I am or what I should do. I can take it all on my own. And if I want to change my body to be something else, I have the power to do that. You know, it, it's the, the rise of self, the ultimate self-determination. And, and so it's not a new sin, um, but just like it was in the garden, it's a deadly one. Yeah. yeah. Folks, if you're just joining us, you're in the family room. Uh, we're here with uh, John Birch, and we're talking about his book, Loving God's Children, uh, The Catholic Church and Gender Ideology. So the Catholic Church, Christianity in general, promotes the whole concept of love and caring and, and being kind. If we have listeners, children, parents, whose peers or have people experiencing what they're identifying as gender dysphoria uh, and they're considering transgender, you know, operations or, or, um, or treatments, what, what is the loving thing to do? And, and maybe even what is the practical thing to do? What can we 
as people who are genuinely concerned and seek to love correctly, what is it that we can do, John? Well, the, the word I love to use, uh, and Pope Francis uses it in many contexts, is accompaniment. All you have to do is think about another example of where someone is engaged in some kind of serious sin um, and how you would respond to that person. And we respond the same way to the gender ideology problem. To say you had a, a relative who was an alcoholic, and so they were continually drinking to excess and putting themselves and other people's lives in danger. You wouldn't just let them continue down that course of conduct because you know it's going to be a disaster for them and possibly for other people. And so you would lovingly approach them and intervene. And if you weren't successful on your own, you would bring a second person with you. And if you um, weren't successful with the two of you, you might bring in your parish priest and you try to get them into treatment and get to the root of their problem. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's exactly the way the Bible tells us. I was going to say, it's in the Bible. Sounds like a quote from Scripture. You get the church. Exactly. And and so it's the same with gender ideology. But to be clear, this only works with someone where you've got some kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. If you see a, a male walking down the street in a female dress, you can't walk up to them and ask them about anorexia and start giving them stats about suicide rates, because they're never going to accept that. But if you can develop a relationship first, then you can have these kinds of conversations because they understand that what you're communicating is coming from a place of care and concern and and not just ideology. And so Pope Francis has an analogy for that too. Um, He says that the church is a field hospital and there are so many people who are wounded and they need to be helped and cured. But if someone comes in and they're bleeding to death, um, you don't ask about their blood pressure or their cholesterol, you give them a tourniquet. So we've got to bring them into the church get them going to Mass, understand who Jesus is, um, why we should love him, why we should follow what he teaches. And then once you have that foundation, you can start to talk about these other things. That's why it's easier and harder in some respects to have these conversations with family members, because you've got that pre-existing relationship. But also it's difficult to be courageous and talk about things that may make people upset, that they might strongly disagree with. They might even walk out and not want to talk to you anymore. But that's the call of the Catholic, that we, we go into battle in the tough places, and we act courageously, and we give them God's Word. And this is a critically important area to do that in. Well, you brought truth to this, too, because we had Jason Everett on the show and talked about high school kids he's spoken to, and one came up, says, I, a boy, want to be a girl. And Jason spent time talking to him and found out it was not because he really wanted to be a female, but it was psychological, a d- dynamic between his parents and his older sisters mm-hmm. that he felt they affirmed more, they cared more about, they loved more. And Jason Everett was like, so do you really want to be a female or is it you just looking for love? And the kid totally lost it crying and said, yeah, I just want to be loved for who I am. But yet if you don't accompany and don't know people like that, then you're going to make assumptions or you're not going to know where they're really coming from. And it's easy to say, oh, yeah, you need to go do that or, you know, get ugly. And it's like this poor kid just needed somebody to love him and just say you're fine yeah. the way you are. Well, and what Jason did there that was um, so beautiful and such a great example for us, he took time, he listened, and he asked questions. Amen. Yeah. He didn't just come at him and say, oh, dude, don't do that. That's crazy. All these bad things will happen to you. Um, but again, he laid all that foundation first and then got to the root of the problem. And, and like we were saying, um, you know, 60% or so of, of kids who have gender dysphoria had some kind of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. But in other instances, it's going to be just like that family situation. There was an issue between mom and dad. Maybe there was a girl who had you know, a, a father who didn't love her, and so she wanted to become a boy. Or maybe it was because there was a, a grandmother 
um, who always wanted a granddaughter and not a grandson and dressed up the grandson in, in female clothing and then showered attention and love on him when she did that. You know, there, there are so many of these possible root causes. But when we give them the pills and we give them the surgery, we're not doing anything to help heal the person. We're simply addressing symptoms, and that's really not loving at all. And I really appreciate how you defined accompaniment well, because that's, again, one of those words that I think has the potential to be hijacked, where accompaniment means, well, I'm going to walk alongside you as you transition, as you take these drugs, as you kind of like, you know, people say, oh, I'm going to accompany them to, I'll be with them when they go to the abortion clinic because I don't want them to be alone, right? Versus I'm going to talk to them about their other options and what's driving them to this. When you learn more about abortion, you learn that most of the time women actually don't want to abort a child. It's because they feel some sort of pressure, usually financial pressure, pressure from somebody else within the family or a boyfriend or a husband or whomever. So I was also thinking about part of John's mentioning earlier that our young people, you know, they're the ones who are in the thick of it because it's that age group where we're starting to see those late teens, uh, teens, late teens, early 20s, which I know we've got kids um, that age. And as, as they see peers or other people this happen to, this, they start to st- struggle with this. Um, I love the idea of building relationship, listening to them, asking them questions. Is there anything else practical that you would offer to that group of people, that group of young people who are right there in the thick of it and watching this happen to their peers that they can do? Well, it's important that they be informed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's one thing to have a general sense of what the church teaches and why this is going to be problematic. It's another to be able to explain that theology, which is really beautiful. We haven't had a, a chance really to explore that yet. Um, you know, to know the science and be able to tell them what happens when people choose a path that's not consistent with the way God created them. Um, and and they just have some of the language that they, they can discuss these things. Um, you know, it, it, it just makes that journeying, that accompaniment, so much easier when you've got the knowledge behind it so that when there are openings to start sharing that, you've got the opportunity to do that. So would you go ahead and break that open? Can you break open some of the, the theology there? I think that is a beautiful opportunity. Yeah, the, the root is really in theology of the body. And mm-hmm. so I, I hope your listeners are familiar with that. JP2's series of talks about the human body and how it helps us reveal who God is. That's theology um, through the mystery of the human body. And when, I won't go into super great detail about this, but at a high level, you know, when God created Adam, Adam was in the garden. He had all the creatures and birds and fish and everything else around him. Um, And yet God saw that something was not good. And that was the first time in the creation story that it happened. And it was because Adam was alone. And so that's when he creates Eve to be his helpmate. And sometimes people malign the helpmate concept because it sounds like a secretary or a gopher. But the, the Hebrew word there, azer, is someone who is indispensable to helping complete you. Mm-hmm. And God is referred to as an azer double-digit times in the Old Testament. So th- this is somebody who's really important. And Adam and Eve see each other, and he immediately exclaims, at last, the flesh of my flesh, the bone of my bone. And they see that they're naked. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they know that they're not the same. It's not an Adam and another Adam, but it's a body that's complementary. You know, and all at once, it was apparent to them what God's plan was. Um, and, and, you know, we, we see this in other parts of the Bible, too, that um, the, the Trinity is God the Father and ultimate love for, for Jesus Christ the Son, God the Son. And from that love proceeds God the Holy Spirit. So you've got this Trinity of persons in an eternal exchange of love, and that the human body and the human family is an icon of that in the way that a man and a woman in a sacramental marriage have 
unconditional love. They share everything with each other, even their reproductive capacity, which we cannot interfere with using contraception. Um, and that love is so strong that proceeds from it a new person mm-hmm. that has its own name, a son or a daughter. It's absolutely beautiful. And so when we change our body and we fight God's plan, um, as I mentioned earlier, it, it destroys our relationship with God and with others, but it also interrupts the created plan of what our bodies are supposed to do. We, we can't give ourselves to someone else in the way that God intended when we change it using cross-sex hormones and, and surgery. You know, so, so flowing from that notion of what the body is for, that it's a purpose and that it's a gift, the Church teaches that we have to accept that gift and, and, and live it, li- live who, who we are, and ultimately, at the end of the time, we're going to be re- reunited with those bodies, whether we like them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's significant that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he had a body that he showed to the apostles. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just a spirit, even though he could pass through doors. He could eat food. They could touch his hands and his side. Um, you know, and so the Catholic Church teaches rightly that in the end, our bodies, too, will be resurrected. And they'll be resurrected exactly the way that God created them, male or female, because that is an expression of who our soul is. Mm. we got about two minutes that, that, left. That's the nickel version. Yeah, no, no, no that was yeah. great. Yeah, it was great. we got about two minutes left. So any thoughts, guys? I want to make sure people know where to get the exactly. book, yeah, right? The yeah, place. yeah. So I know that you are um, published by Sophia Press. Where should people go to get your to get your book? You can get the book through any of the major online retailers. That includes Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But I strongly encourage people to go through Sophia Institute Press. Uh, They are a faithful Catholic publisher. They are producing great books on so many topics right now and and bringing back a lot of the classics that have been out of print for a long time. And when you you buy through Amazon, 55% of that purchase goes to Amazon. And they're using it to promote books on the other side of the gender ideology issue. Mm -hmm. So it it might take a, a little bit longer. You might have to pay for the shipping. Um, but I would love it if people would look for the book through Sophia Institute Press. Um, it's not on the website, but if you contact them, it's possible to buy the book by the case, 40 at a time, uh, at half price. And some very generous uh, folks around the country have started to buy these in bulk so that they can have 500 copies for everybody at their parish. You know, every family gets one um, because we, we really need everybody in the pew to understand every aspect of this problem if they're going to be able to talk winsomely about it. That's great. Thank you. So, John, if you wouldn't mind, awesome time. Uh, I'm so grateful for your uh, your wisdom and your activities. Would you mind uh, wrapping us up with a prayer, please? Happy to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of creation, this beautiful world that you've made for us, also the gift of human life. And as we've been talking about today, the gift of our human bodies. Each one of us was beautifully and wonderfully made intentionally, male and female, that you have a plan for each one of us from the beginning and a way for us to express that human sexuality, whether that be through the beauty of marriage or through a non-marriage vocation or even priesthood or uh, a religious order. Um, Heavenly Father, you know that our hearts, because of the fall, are prone to sin, and that sin is to depart from your will for us, and we can see that sin just seeping throughout culture when it comes to self-determination and the human body. And so we ask that you send the Holy Spirit to send us the words that we need to be champions for your vision of the world rather than the devil's, to bring people in a line with your word rather than to depart from it, to engage in love and not sin, because ultimately we know that's what will make us happy in this life, but be able to spend eternity with you in the next. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
John, we really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. God and, bless. And listeners, we appreciate you being with us here in the family room again. Stay tuned for us again. And listeners, we appreciate you being with us here in the family room as well. We look forward to seeing you again next week, where we offer hope, encouragement, truth, and wisdom for families. Thanks for hanging out with us in the family room, sponsored by Versprite. For more info, go to thequestatlanta.com.